Galatians 5, 22 through 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. I remind you that what Paul was literally meaning was there is no law the enemy can appeal to in the divine court of heaven. When God goes to bless you or you go to pray for your lost loved ones or for your healing of cancer or that of a family member or your promotion or your raise or whatever it is that you're seeking God for, the enemy who is the accuser of the brethren stands in the court of heaven and says, "Uh uh-uh, wait, can't do that, God. That person's not perfect. They're flaws. And he uses our own lives to try and cause us to be discredited in the divine court of heaven. Things like, God goes to bless us, but we haven't tithed. And the enemy says, you can't bless them, God, because your word says that if they tithe, you will open the windows of heaven. Things like that. And when we are guilty, what happens is is that the enemy is able to successfully approach God and say, according to your own law, they have lost the legal right to be blessed. The Apostle Paul is saying that when you have the character, which is the fruit of the Spirit, it's the character of God, within you there is no law. The enemy cannot then go to heaven and the divine court of the universe and make an accusation that is successful. This last particular fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit of self-control, is one we don't like to hear talked about. The very word self-control immediately bring a dampening effect to any conversation. Immediately. We don't want it. We cringe when we hear the word self-control. Proverbs 25, 28 said, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls, which means it's lost its defenses, but more. Eugene Peterson, in his translation, translates it it this way, a person without self-control is like a house without its doors and windows knocked out. We have all seen in inner city areas that once were prime and prosperous the effects of decay and poverty the influx of drugs, gangs, and where families were once raised and children played in the yard and people dreamed dreams of a happy life in a future. There are now houses where the doors have been ripped off, the windows are boarded over. There's graffiti painted on the walls. The roof is leaking. The yard is knee high and there's debris everywhere. And long ago, anything of any value in that house has been taken out and stolen. Were you to go inside, you would see the sheetrock damaged. You would see the ceiling with big brown splotches where the rain has leaked through. That house that used to be a symbol of the prosperity of a family that had a dream has now been reduced to a shell without doors and windows and has become a flop house or a crack house and is a magnet for violence. The Bible says that without self-control, that's what happened. Dreams are lost. Value is taken away. And where once there was the promise of a future, there's graffiti spray painted on the walls. 
I want to speak this morning from the subject flourishing because God is teaching me self-control. This is part two. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will speak to us right now and let your word impact our lives and teach us and form in us your character. And everybody said in Jesus' name. Shout it out loud in Jesus' name. Appearances are important. I think we would all agree to that. One of the earliest memories that I have of the teachings of my grandmother is her emphatically teaching, you may not have the best clothes, son, and we were raised poor, and you may not have the latest designers, but you can always be neat and presentable, and you can be clean. She taught us that one's appearance speaks a great deal about who they are. She insisted, for example, that our shoes be polished, even though there may be a hole in the bottom of the sole. To this day, before I walk out of the house, I look down at my boots to make sure they're not scuffed. Because she taught me, if you want people to respect you, respect yourself enough to make your appearance indicate you have self-respect. You can't choose your looks, but you can make the most of what you have. And having said you can't choose your looks, even that seems to be changing these days. You heard about Shirley, right? Had a heart attack in her mid-40s, rushed into surgery while on the operating table. She had an NDE, near-death experience, and saw God and asked him to give her more time. And God smiled and said, not to worry, Shirley. You're going to live another 40 years. She awoke in recovery, and while she's laying there, she's thinking, 40 more years. I need to make the most of it. So she called a plastic surgeon to come in while she was recovering. And she determined to have plastic surgery on her face, Botox, liposuction, augmentation in all the right places, including some junk in the trunk. <laughs> Had expensive veneers put on her teeth for the perfect smile. While she was recovering, she even had a hairdresser come to the hospital and do her hair and a makeup art artist to come and give her a makeover just before she got out. She called in a stylist who dressed her in the latest fashion. And as she was leaving the hospital and crossing the street, she got hit by a bus and was killed. And when she came to, she was in heaven standing before the Lord. And she looked around and she said, I don't understand, God. Wait a minute, you said I had another 40 years and it's only been six weeks. At which point, God leaned over his throne and looked and said, Shirley, is that you? You've changed so much I didn't even recognize you. My bad, sorry. Amen. Appearances really do matter. And I love what happens to our appearance spiritually. We're often concerned about the external appearance when, as God told Samuel, he was concerned about the appearance of our heart. And when you get saved, God's word goes to work on you and begins to change the way you look on the inside. And we begin to take on his image and his likeness. And since God does not have flesh and bones, you need to understand that image and likeness simply doesn't refer to your physical or outward appearance. It refers to how you appear in the spirit domain and realm. 
Romans 8 and 29 said, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The word conform means to have the same form as another. The root word means appearance. In other words, what Paul is saying is that God predestined that we would be made in the same appearance as Christ. He is causing us to look like him. It doesn't happen overnight. And Christians have often gotten a bad rap because people say, ah, like Christian, I know a Christian, he did this, that, and the other. And what they fail to understand is, it's just like the bumper sticker declares, I'm forgiven, but I'm not perfect yet. But every day, hopefully, I'm moving a little bit more in the right direction of looking like him. The word image that is used here in this verse literally means likeness. And that, of course, brings to mind Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness, and, and then let him have dominion over the, everything in the earth and so forth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Image and likeness. The very words that Paul uses are the words that are connected with Adam's incredible spiritual authority that we find that he possessed in Genesis 1. And that's important because Adam walked in uncontested spiritual authority. Amen. It was never disputed. Everything in creation submitted to him. He had, because he had uncontested spiritual authority, he had peace. He lived in harmony with nature. There was no pain, no sickness, no disease. He lacked, literally lacked nothing Every day of his life, he lived in supernatural overflow. He experienced the extraordinarily blessed life of abundance. But Adam's authority was not because he listened to a sermon series on spiritual authority or took a class on spiritual authority or I've got a book out of the 12 levels of spiritual authority. Adam didn't have spiritual authority because he read my book. It was because he looked like God. He was made in God's image and likeness. He had God's appearance. And again, since God doesn't have flesh and bones, it is very clear that we, what we should infer is that in the spiritual dimension, the spirit realm, Adam looked like God. Amen. It worked in the same way with Adam as it does with us today when somebody founds a business and it becomes an empire and their son or their daughter grows up and looks just like them what we call the spitting image. And that son or daughter walks into the main office at the corporate headquarters. They're not going to treat them like they would some low-level employee because walking through that door is somebody that carries daddy's image and looks like the founder of this company, the one who created it. They have their appearance and mannerisms. You have noticed over life and even examining your own life that as you get older, you oftentimes begin to resemble your parents in terms of the, your values and the things you say. My son made that remark at lunch just the other day. He said, Dad, all those things you used to say to me when I was a kid, he said, I find myself saying those very things to my children. You start looking like Dad, not necessarily physically. And the reason is, is because words have incredible power to shape things. Words don't shape your external appearance. They shape you internally. That's true of all words, but especially true 
of God's word. When God spoke the world into existence, the words literally came out of his mouth, according to Jewish scholars, and flaming letters of fire that created everything that we see around us. His word had creative power. Hebrews eleven thirteen confirms this by faith. We understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. The word framed there in that verse in the Greek literally means completed as in a construction project. That God's word went out of his mouth and his word has creative power. And it completed the construction of everything we see around us. Amen. And God's image in you is completed and his image is constructed by the words of his mouth as well. This is why on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell, Acts 2, there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. And I've often heard scholars debate why that was, but it really is very simple. If you understand what the Jews believe about the words coming out of God's mouth to form the earth, and then Satan comes along and through his word robs Adam of his heavenly image and appearance, then what is actually happening in Acts chapter 2 is God is now remaking man in his image once more. And the words are coming out of his mouth that are the agency or the mechanism by which he causes this transformation to occur. This is why in Job 6 and 25, Job says, How forceful are right words. But the flip side of that same thing is true. How forceful are wrong words. Right words construct. They have incredible power to bless or injure. They are containers that carry the ability to impact someone's life for good or for harm. Amen. We think in terms of thought pictures, as I've often tried to express to you, which is one reason you need to guard what your eyes see, because that appeals directly to your subconscious and bypasses the filter of your conscious mind. For example, if I say the word tree, right now, in your mind, I'd just like to ask a question. How many of you thought of the letters T-R-E-E? Not a person here. How many of you in your mind saw the image of a tree? Everybody did. It's because we're visual in terms of our thinking processes. And that is why words are so powerful. They are literally the containers that paint these images in our mind. And so words that are right paint an image of you in your own mind and an image of what God can do like the song sang a while ago that is right and correct. Wrong words create the wrong image of who you are. And this is why so many people are damaged by things that people have said over them in the course of their lifetime. You're dumb, you're stupid, you're ugly, you never amount to anything. And all of those things are deeply injurious and wound us to our core because they create for us the wrong image of who we are. Man listened to the wrong words. When Adam sinned, he lost authority because he listened to the words of the enemy. And the enemy's words were words that tore him down. When the enemy said, Has God really said you will not surely die? And Adam chose to accept that word rather than God's word. He lost the image that God 
had created and molded him to be in the likeness of. And then Adam took on the image of the one whose word he had embraced. Here is the question, whose word are you living your life by? I want to say it again. You're listening to somebody's word. You're either listening to this word right here and bringing your thoughts and your life into alignment or you're listening to some other words somewhere and this will cause you to look like him. Those words cause you to look fallen like the fallen one. Amen. And this was precisely where Adam found himself. And since that time, man has been needing the word to remake him, reshape his life. The world has been in anguish and turmoil ever since, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Romans 8, 19, the Bible says, For the earnest expectation of the creature eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. What does that mean? It means that God is trying to shape his character in us where the world doesn't see the fallen image any longer but the reflection of our heavenly father. The fruit of the spirit is what they're looking for. That is the image of God. Having spent some weeks on the first eight, I'm now on self-control, the one we don't like to talk about. Romans 7, 21 through 25 Listen to this, I find in a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good, Paul said, I'm willing to do good, but evil is present. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is where in my members. Two different laws, he said, one in my mind, one in my body are my members. That has to do with your thoughts, your emotions, your will. And the mind is where the battle will be fought as to which one controls you. Oh, wretched man that I am, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with, notice this, with the mind, with the mind, I serve the law of God. What do you serve God with? Come on, help me out. It's right there on the screen. What do you serve the, the, the law of God with? The mind. The mind. It has to start there. But he said, with the flesh, the law of sin. You listen to your emotions. You listen to, to your own thoughts, your own will. You will inevitably serve the law of sin. And when Paul spoke in these verses about this body of death, that he wanted to be delivered from, he's referring back to a particularly cruel form of punishment and execution that the Roman government reserved for the most vicious of criminals. They would take a person convicted of the vicious crimes and they would take a dead body, strap it on his back, arm to arm, belly to back, legs to legs, and strap them tightly together. And turn them loose in the wilderness and leave them there with instructions that no one who sees someone like this should ever help them. And this man that is alive is strapped to this dead body on his back. And the flesh begins to decay and putrefy of that body on his back until it begins to contaminate and cause his own body to rot and decay. 
And he died the most horrific of deaths because of the dead men on his back. And Paul is saying, I've got a dead man on my back that I want to get rid of. And if I serve the law of the members, the will of my flesh, this will kill me. But if I serve the law of the mind, I will serve God and I'll be set free. Somebody in the building say, amen. We all have a dead man on our back. You are strapped to the old man of sin. And the fruit of the Spirit is what sets you free now to begin to look like God. Amen. Amen. Our problem is we try to resurrect that fellow. Give him a shot of penicillin. Put a few Band-Aids on. Call the EMS. 911. Help. And when our flesh begins to act up, we fight for it. When what we ought to do is let it alone. It's going to hurt us. In the last century, America fought two horrific world wars, devastating wars that cost millions of lives. But we were at least fortunate in this regard that they were fought in distant lands and not at home. Even in modern times, we are fighting wars on different fronts, but thanks be to God, they have not been right here. Faraway places like Afghanistan and Iraq, Syria, problems with North Korea, and others. But the battle I'm talking about is a lot closer to home. It's not in some distant place. It's the battle that's going on right now in your own heart and mind. It's a civil war against your own thoughts. And if you listen to what I'm saying, you quickly pick up that it's almost as though we're two people living on the inside of the same body. There's one that wants to do right, and there's another that wants to do the wrong thing. And it's like, it's almost like we're schizophrenic or, or we have a split personality, spiritually speaking. And we look at some of the things we do and we, we say, how in the world could I ever do that? We say something, we act in a certain way, we cause damage and pain, and later we regret it and wonder where in the world did that come from? This war is different in this regard too. Not only is it in, on the inside. All of the wars this nation has fought, we've always depended upon a military to go and fight on behalf of the rest of us. And I thank God for every one of you that have ever served in the U.S. military to help preserve the democracy of this nation. But this is one war you can't send somebody else to fight. You've got to fight this one by yourself. And we live in a time when the idea is being promoted that we all have the right to do whatever we want to do. Do whatever you want. That isn't correct. That means that as mere mortals, we're literally telling our creator, we reject your authority and rule in our lives because your word has certain constraints that it asks us to observe. And I don't want to be tied down. It was Winston Churchill who said, responsibility is the key to greatness, doing what you ought to do and not what you want to do. All of us struggle with the effects of this dead man on our back. It can be an unbridled tongue, a quick temper, deep-seated insecurities, jealousy, impure thoughts, or the feeling that I've got to please others and therefore I've even got a lie to make them happy. It can be greed, 
But a lack of self-control is the fastest way I know of for you to torpedo your own life. In ministry, more people have lost their ministry because of a lack of self-control than anything or any other reason that I know of. You see, why is self-control so important? And why do we resist the discussions about it? Self-control is important because somebody's going to get hurt if you take liberties without regard to those who are around you. Your freedom's going to step on somebody's foot. You're going to cross over into their lane, but your flesh doesn't want to hear it because it's your flesh that you're worried against. And we all cringe when the word is used. But God set up this world and the laws that govern it with the intention of protecting each and every one of us and with the desire to help us enjoy our liberty in Christ and not to infringe upon one another's freedoms. John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. Indeed, what is a disciple? It's somebody that's becoming like their master or their teacher. When you abide in my word, it's transforming you into me. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And they got mad. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The message of the Bible, and I want to say this right now and underscore it, italicize it, emphasize it, I want to make it in bold letters. I want to capitalize every letter of it. The message of the Bible is a message of freedom. Don't you let anybody tell you the Bible cramps your lifestyle. People will tell you the Bible rains on your parade. No, no, no. What the Bible does is stop you from raining on somebody else's parade. The Bible asks you not to hurt others. Amen. You see, you can't do wrong without somebody paying the price for the wrong you have done, even though you may think that no one's aware of it and you got away with what you're doing. It happens every day. Toxic emissions pollute the atmosphere and some wealthy guy gets richer. But then kids develop cancer and they pay the price. Someone steals from another and the other person suffers a loss they should not have experienced. What someone thinks is an innocent flirtation occurs and the next thing you know, a wife or a husband has been crushed and their world destroyed. A marriage ends. Kids suffer. We are responsible for and other because we really are our brother's keeper. How many of you have ever had that feeling after somebody's just chewed you up or said something to you that left you feeling a certain way on the inside that you know you did not do anything to deserve? 
I had it happen to me not long ago at an airport when they had lost my luggage and I'd gone back. I may have mentioned this to you and got there and there was a lady I'd never, I, that I'd seen at a distance, but she didn't know me. And I understand I'm in and out of there every week and everybody knows me, but she worked on a different part of the counter and now they put her up to be supervisor. And I walk in and I say, I'm here to check on my luggage. And, and then I, I realized that she didn't know me. She looked at me like, who are you? And I said, would, would it be better if I went to some of these others behind the counter that know me? And for some reason, I was trying to make it easy for her. She interpreted that to mean that I didn't think she could do her job. And she lit into me. I mean, you think I can't do my job? You think I don't know? I said, no, ma'am, that's not what I said. I'm trying to help you. Those folk recognize my luggage because I fly in and out of here every week. And would it be easier since they know my luggage is missing because we have been back and forth in email communication with the station manager for this airline, would it be easier if I spoke with them since you're not aware of the situation? And she just went on, and I finally said, ma'am, I want to say this. I said, I want you to know, first of all, that I'm a psychologist. And secondly, and I smiled, and I said, I've done you nothing wrong. I'm not the one who hurt you. I'm not the one who did you damage. I'm just trying to get my bag. (laughs) Now, would it be better for you to help me, or do you want one of them that knows about it to help? Oh, at that point, it was all, they told her, that's the guy that flies every week. There's nobody that flies as much as... And she goes, oh my God, what have I done here? <laughs> yeah. But I was kind. But I walked away from there just like you do in a situation like that. I felt like I'd been stepped all over. You see, whenever you have these, these things that go on in your life that are allowed to occur without restraint. Somewhere somebody's going to get hurt and somebody's going to get injured and God cares for his creation and his kind. He loves us all and wants to protect us. And that is why, contrary to what people say, you're not supposed to do everything you want. Your freedoms extend to the point that when they start robbing me of my freedoms, you don't have the right to do that to me anymore. You're free to be who you are. And this is what Jesus is saying. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And the prisons are full of those who bought into the lie that you're entitled to do whatever you want to do. There are people that believe they could do whatever they want. And all of us have been needlessly hurt by folk like that. Whether it's stealing or drugs or pornography or lying or cheating or anything else. Someone is affected negatively by sin, and God is not against the sinner. He's trying to help us understand our moral obligation to bless one another. Amen. And there's no such thing as a victimless crime. I keep hearing that. Oh, prostitution ought to be legalized. There's no such thing as, as a victimless crime is my response. Oh, yeah, it is. doesn't hurt anybody if it's between consenting adults. Really? Ask the little wife at home. Ask the kids what they're going to do when they're not staying with daddy anymore. Oh, but nothing wrong with drugs. Really? 
And yet you're teaching your child a lifestyle that's going to hold them back for as long as they live and passing on the consequences of your bad decisions to them. Really? Victimless crimes? I doubt it. Because there's no such thing. And not only does do God's laws keep us from hurting one another, they are designed to keep us from destroying our own potential. Because your potential is a gift from God. You were born with greatness inside of you that is waiting to be discovered and developed. And that's what the kingdom of God is all about. God wants to elevate your life, cause you to live such an extraordinarily blessed life that everybody that looks at you says, wow, wow. And you become a living witness to what God can do whenever you have no self-restraint. You destroy your own potential as well as hurt others. Amen. A person can be brilliant, but without self-control, they're destined to go through life hurting others and ultimately to be despised because of it. Someone can be wealthy, but without self-control, they're headed for poverty. Their excesses will see to that. They can be powerful, but without self-control, they're weak and enslaved by their own failings. You can be famous and well-known, but without self-control, it's only a matter of time before you lose respect for yourself and you also lose the respect of those whose respect most matters to you, and that's your friends and family and co-workers. Make it plain. You can be an Olympic gold medalist like Ron Ryan Lochte in Brazil and his Olympic swim team members, but if you don't have integrity... You stay out late and party, stop at a service station, break the door, vandalize property, and lie about it and tell people you were robbed. And when the truth comes out, your gold medals don't mean anything to you anymore because the people that held you as a hero are now looking at you altogether differently. Paul spoke of self-control in 2 Timothy 2. Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And I love that, with me. Meaning I want to model the right example. Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, Paul says. For then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. And athletes cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. When someone enlists in the military, you do realize, and ask anyone who's ever served in the U.S. military in this church, You are not only sent to basic training to learn how to become a soldier in terms of the physical mechanisms of what soldiers must do. They also begin the process of retraining the way you think. The U.S. Navy SEALs are known for never quitting, aren't they? And overcoming incredible obstacles. I've met a lot of them in my my travels. I know some that that are trainers. There's one in Mississippi that got saved in a meeting that I was preaching in Laurel, Mississippi years ago. That became a U.S. SEAL team uh, trainer in terms of there at, uh, I forgot what they call that place up in Virginia where they trained them. We've all had the chance to look over the shoulder of some of these guys. Remember the raid in Pakistan where they found Osama bin Laden and brought him to justice after he had killed 3,000 people, World Trade Tower massacres? I took a degree of courage most of us will never be required to ever have. The SEAL team members demand and call out of people abilities they never knew they ever possessed. And you know why? They teach them the 40% rule. Have you ever heard of it? 
40% rule. Talk to anybody that's a SEAL team member. 40% rule. What is the 40% rule? The 40% rule states that you are stronger than you think you are. And when you hit the wall and your mind tells you that you cannot do anymore, you're really only 40% done. When you think you have done everything and used up all the gas in the tank that you possibly can and you can't go anymore, you've actually only used only 40% of your potential And this is why they work on their mind. A renewed mind is the greatest asset to living the extraordinarily blessed life. And that's why when you come into the kingdom of God, Paul is talking about the law of the mind as opposed to the law of the flesh. Because all of your life you've lived according to the law of the flesh. And now God is trying to change the way you think so that you can reflect his image. And how does he do that? By putting his word in you. And his word begins to shape his image and his likeness in you and calls out of you the God-given potential that you were created and born with. And you become powerful. Amen. But just as a renewed mind is your greatest asset, an unrenewed mind is your greatest obstacle. And I've shared this with you before and I'm done. But your thoughts determine your character, and we're learning that more and more. All recent studies in behavioral science and psychology tell us that it all begins with a thought, not as we believe with a circumstance. We think we're victims of circumstances. We're not. We're victim of our own thinking. I'm going to start a new series immediately that I'm titling Free From Me because The guy you really need to get free from is yourself. Amen. It's like T.D. Jake said years ago, the enemy is the enemy in a me. That's where your biggest battle is, the civil war. It all begins this way. This is the way they affect your thoughts. Situations, good and bad, happen to everybody. And your thoughts, when you get into that situation, will determine your emotions. Amen. Your situation will determine your thoughts, and you have a choice right there to say, no, I will not allow my situation to determine my thoughts. I will allow the Word of God to determine my thoughts while I'm in the situation. And your thoughts will determine your emotion, and your emotions determine your attitudes, and your attitudes determine your self-talk and speech, and your self-talk and speech determines your behavior, and your behavior becomes your habits. And your habits determine your lifestyle. And your lifestyle molds your character. And at the end of the day, it's your character that determines your destiny. And where does it all start? For our entire lives, we have been taught that it starts with a situation. And God says, wrong. Doesn't start with a situation. Into every life, a little rain must fall. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation, but in me you shall have peace. The word tribulation means pressure, stress. Everybody's going to go through some negative situations. Bad doctor's report. Pink slips on the job. Relational challenges. Issues with the boss. Everybody goes through that. It's how you decide to think about it. And this is where the programming of the Word of God is powerful. Behavioral scientists now say, sow a thought and reap an act. Sow an act and reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. That's Ralph Waldo Emerson, 
the great writer. Mahatma Gandhi said, your beliefs become your thoughts. Your thoughts become your words. Your words become your actions. Your actions become your habits. Your habits become your values. And your values become your destiny. Stop thinking that life has been unfair to you. But you don't know what I'm going through. You live in a fallen world. This is not heaven. Look around. See any angels flying across the room? The halos are starting to get a little tarnished in here, you know? Notice the streets are not paved with gold either. This is not heaven. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation regardless of its source, has overtaken or enticed you. That is not common to human experience, nor is any temptation unusual or beyond human resistance. But God is faithful to his word. He is compassionate and trustworthy, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to resist. But along with the temptation... He has in the past and is now and will always provide the way out as well so that you will be able to endure it without yielding and will overcome temptation with joy. Tell somebody, I am an overcomer. Shout it out loud, I am an overcomer. I will have joy in the middle of the struggle. I'm going to have joy. In the middle of the difficulty and the challenge, I'm going to have joy. What I'm walking through, somebody else is walking through. Tell somebody, I feel like I've used up all of my reserves, but I've only used up 40%. I've still got 60% left in my tank. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I can do all things. All things through Christ. Through Christ. I am more than an overcomer.